Well, in about six days, your children, your grandchildren, maybe even you, will rush into the family room and to begin acting like lions who've just caught a zebra. They won't be eating anything, though, because you're not hungry in the morning when it's Christmas morning. But instead, they will carnivorously latch onto the beautifully wrapped gifts until they get their paws on the new toys they've been bugging you for the last 12 months to get. The joy of Christmas. And it lasts about 15 minutes, doesn't it? And it's done. You know, we've tried our best to train our children about the real meaning of Christmas, but their animal instincts take over on Christmas morning. They devour everything they can until there's nothing left to devour, and my wife and I have to go clean everything up. For a few minutes every year, nothing else seems to matter. So we do what we can as parents while they lose their minds. And what we've tried to instill in our kids, and what you have with your kids, I'm certain, is the real meaning of Christmas. It's not about presents, the music, the tree, Charlie Brown. Christmas is what the name says. It's a celebration of the birth of Christ, the coming king. The Gospel of Luke gives us a beautiful account of the birth of Christ. The emperor of the day declared that a census would be taken throughout the Roman world. And, and so what this means for those 2,000 years ago was that every family had to travel back to their ancestral tribal town rather than the one they currently lived. Joseph and Mary were not married yet, but they still traveled together from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which was about 100 miles. See, Mary was a virgin. She wasn't yet married. She was young. Joseph had every right to end that relationship, that if you're dating someone and your future spouse says, hey, I'm pregnant and you are certainly not the one, maybe it's time to leave. But Joseph didn't. He was at first, but he committed to caring for Jesus after a visit from an angel. Well, this wasn't news to anyone. This has been happening since the beginning. This was not news to anyone outside of the, the gossip in Nazareth. This wasn't anything spectacular to most people. But this event was noteworthy. A multitude of angels loudly praised the birth of Christ. Wise men and shepherds traveled from afar to see this newborn king. Not everyone was excited. Rulers learned about Jesus' birth and they were afraid of losing their power. So they sought to kill the young Jesus, but they didn't know where he was. And so they slaughtered thousands or hundreds of thousands or possibly more little children. Mary and Joseph knew what was happening, so they took Jesus and fled to Egypt. Even that wasn't all that remarkable. Jesus wasn't born in a palace with guards surrounding him. He wasn't born in a hospital with technology that, that has helped us to, to thrive. Musicians didn't play rousing songs of celebration. But the music of heaven was loud. But back in Bethlehem, 
Mary, like every woman before and every woman after, delivered Jesus with little fanfare. She wrapped Jesus in cloths and placed him in a box where animals would feed. This is not an earthly king. Let alone the king of kings. But that was the plan all along. Jesus came in the humblest way possible. as a helpless baby. His mother experienced everything mothers today face, sleepless nights and diaper changes. It's the same thing that all of you who've had children experience. It's the exact same story. Jesus, God in the flesh, came to us for a unique and important purpose. And he chose to be one of us. But his work didn't stop there. The Christmas story should cause us to see something even bigger than Jesus in a manger. This celebration that we do every December, and especially on December 25th, this celebration should push us in the direction not just of Jesus coming to be with us, which is important, but what Jesus did for us in his death and resurrection. See, I say this every year. Christmas is just the opening of the door for Easter. Jesus coming to be with us and to live with us points us to the end of the story where Jesus dies and is resurrected and then this time period which we don't know how long before Jesus returns again and everything will be made right and everything will be made perfect. But that doesn't happen without this story. That doesn't happen without Christmas. Well, this morning, I want to look at just one verse. It's in 2 Corinthians 8. And it may sound strange because often how we preach here is expository preaching. And if if you're not sure with what that means, expository preaching takes a passage of Scripture and the main point of that passage becomes the main point of the sermon. Generally, how that's done is we start in a book and we start in verse 1 and we just march through until we're done. And the reason why we believe that that's important um, is because God's word matters more than mine. And if I didn't do that, then you would get all sorts of stories that just interest me. It would be very easy to skip over difficult passages. But rather, we take verse 1 and walk all the way through. But there are moments in the calendar that demand maybe a different type of sermon. There are some that are topical. The pastor kind of creates something out of his, out of his mind, and, and so we create something that we usually find this on Christmas and Easter. We, we've also preached on series of, of the church, church membership, why it's important. Now, I say all of this for two reasons. First, I want to remind us of what we value most. It's God and his word. We, we value God, obviously, more, but the Word tells us about God, and the Word has been given to us to explain to us who God is and how God operates. It's what we dedicate our lives to learning about. And second, there are moments that call for a different kind of preaching. And this is one of them. There are times that call for a more doctrinal sermon. One that proclaims a big truth of Scripture that's not found in the order of preaching. And this morning, the biggest truth of Scripture that we're going to find in this passage is the gospel. There is no bigger lesson. There is no bigger story than what we're going to find in just a few words. 
And I'm convinced that every passage, every book, every page of the Bible points us to Christ. Beginning in Genesis, going all the way through Revelation, everything points us to our need for a Savior and a promise of the Savior that gives us forgiveness of our sin. See, the problem of sin in Genesis is answered by Jesus as the promised Redeemer on the cross. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover Lamb. In Leviticus, Jesus is the High Priest. We can go on. And it goes all the way to Revelation where Jesus returns to reign as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. See, all the Bible is about Jesus, so we devote ourselves to learning more about him. And where we see him shining the brightest is in the gospel. So what is the gospel? It's a word that we use a lot, gospel music. Here here at this church we talk about gospel-centeredness or gospel-centered preaching. But we often don't define what the gospel is. And the gospel is found in our verse today, in our text today. We only have one, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, We've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is interesting to see because this is 2 Corinthians, a letter written later. And we've been seeing the problems in the church in Corinth. They were a young church, a church that was messed up, and and they were still working through their theology and their understanding of who God is. But one thing I'm sure that they heard a lot was the gospel. They as a church would celebrate the gospel of what Jesus had done for them. Just like we do every time we gather, we proclaim the gospel through our music, through our preaching, through our fellowship. So what is the gospel? A quick definition is the teaching of Christ. But there are many who claim to follow Christ but deny essential doctrines of the faith. Richard Sibbs, an Anglican theologian in England in the 1600s, Summarize the gospel in this way. What is the gospel itself but a merciful moderation in which Christ's obedience is esteemed ours and our sins laid upon him wherein God from being a judge becomes our father, pardoning our sins and accepting our obedience. Though feeble and blemished, we are now brought to heaven under the covenant of grace by way of love and mercy. It's beautiful language, but if that's a little too archaic for you, Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., summarized the gospel this way. Here is what I understand the good news to be. The good news is that the one and only God who is holy made us in his image to know him. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became man in Jesus, lived a perfect life and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us has been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sin and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. Now that is good news. That's not a brief message, but it's complete. It's clear. There are are many who see the the term gospel as something social, as something that's only an inward change in one person's life, that it's intended to make us better 
whatever that means. See, the heart of the gospel says that we aren't good enough, that we've broken God's rules, and he, as the creator, has every right to demand that we follow what he says. And when we don't, he has every right to do whatever he wants to us. He cannot sin, and he cannot allow sin to achieve any sort of victory, so the only right thing to do is to punish the sinner for their rebellion. Now, that may sound harsh, but that's because we're flawed creatures, and flawed creatures don't have perfect reasoning. And as creatures, we don't get to make up the rules. See, for many years, God had instituted a system of sacrifice where people would take their most prized animal and would slaughter that animal, would kill the animal as a sacrifice, as a substitute to show true repentance for the sin that they committed. The problem in that was that it was never intended to solve our deepest problem. That system was designed to show people that no matter what they do in their attempts to win God's favor, nothing would ever do it. No amount of good works or animal sacrifices or rituals performed by a priest could bridge the gulf that separated humanity from God. And God knew that. God knew that before the world was created. He knew that Adam and Eve would sin before he created them. And he knew that Adam's sin would poison the rest of humanity through his DNA. Adam's sin filters down to every single human being outside of one that has ever been walking on this earth. God knew that. And he also knew that the only way for his perfect righteous wrath to be satisfied was to kill the only true spotless lamb, and that's his son, Jesus. So Jesus took on human flesh and was born of a virgin. He, he took no DNA from Joseph, so he didn't carry a sin nature like we all do. He wasn't born in sin like us, and he lived a perfect life unlike us. He did this to fulfill what we couldn't, all of the laws that are found in the Old Testament. See, if Jesus had never come, we would still be trying to win God's favor. We would still be worried about our state. We would still be worried about what's happening. But Jesus gives us finality. Jesus gives us hope and a promise. And God sent his son Jesus to live with us and to die for us. So that we wouldn't have to suffer God's wrath. And that is promised to all who believe. And for those who turn from their sins and trust in Christ, eternity with God is promised. Not only do we not have to suffer the wrath of God for eternity, we get to live in his presence forever. And while we're here, we live with the assurance that our future is secure. And we know that everything has a purpose, even when things don't seem like it. This is the gospel. This is the message of the gospel. The purpose for Jesus' coming is to make us right with the Father. That's why the church exists. To celebrate, to proclaim, to spread the message to all the world that they will see the glorious grace that God offers to everyone. And it's why we send out missionaries. It's why we plant churches. It's why we value the teaching of God's word. 
It's why we celebrate Christmas. This is the story of Jesus coming to live with us. But it's also the story of Jesus dying for us. The grace of Jesus that Paul talks about in this story, it's the grace that we celebrate today. This is the grace that Paul references in our verse today. So Paul establishes that the church in Corinth already knows this, this grace that's only found in Christ. He's taught them, and he knows that they've been taught the gospel. And so he says, look, I know you've heard this message. I know you've heard the gospel. So what? He says that Jesus was rich. You know, anyone looking at Jesus, if Jesus were to, to walk in our building now in the same way that he looked then, he would look no different than any other person that was alive at that moment. There was nothing spectacular about him, his look. He, he, didn't, he didn't carry a, an aura about him. He didn't have the halo behind his head. You know, he, he just looked like a normal, ordinary guy. He didn't have much money. He, scripture even says he only had enough money to finance his ministry needs. So how could Paul say that he was rich? To answer this, you need to know who Jesus is. Jesus is fully man, as could be seen by anyone who looked at him. But he was also fully God. How that works, I have no earthly idea. One of my early teachers always called Jesus the God-man savior of the world. And, and it's true, and I heard this drilled into my head constantly, and, and he would say, 100% God, 100% man. It's not 50-50, how does that work? I have no earthly idea, but God works in the way that he decides. God's ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. So there are just moments and things that we see in Scripture that we just can't fully grasp. But Scripture says that he's fully man and he's fully God. And we know that because that's what the Bible says. And it's the only way that our salvation can make any kind of sense. Jesus is fully man and fully God. He has existed forever with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Everything for all eternity was perfect, but even more than the beauty and grandeur of heaven, he had perfect fellowship in the Trinity. It was better and more complete than anything that we can even imagine. We'll never fully grasp what this is and what this experience was, but I think we've been given a taste for this. We'll never know what it's like to have perfect love. It just doesn't exist. Not between people. But we do have a sense inside of us that our lives and this world, there's something more. There's something beyond what we've experienced in our lives. There's something bigger and better. And I think it's that we all have this innate sense, this, this desire for something more. And I think we've been created with that. I think it's a, a God-implanted feeling that, that he gives to us, that, that we hope for something better than what we see and better than what we've experienced. Because truth be told, if this life is all that there is, that's not a really good outcome, is it? The suffering and the pain 
and the anguish and the loss and the abandonment and the abuse, all of those things, if there is not an end and if there is not a correction for those things, why do we even exist? And I think it's because we have a desire to go back to the garden. See, Scripture tells us that the story ends in the garden where the garden is made new and perfected again and and it'll be similar to what we see in Genesis where the garden is restored. That's why we're never satisfied with what we have here and now. C.S. Lewis says that that we only possess desires for things that actually exist. Things like food and water. This is what he writes. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Whether we realize it or not, we long to be where Jesus is and where he will set up his kingdom. Jesus left what we desire. Deep down, he left perfection to be with us. And what did he become? So Jesus was rich, but he became Poor. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. Now, there are two ways to really look at this. The first way to look is that Jesus became poor by leaving heaven. And the picture that I get, now this is a flawed picture, but have you ever seen a politician after some kind of tragedy? We lived in Florida for, for a few years, and, and after a hurricane would come through, you know, there'd be Uh, stuff all over the place, and a politician would come, and he or she would help the cleanup. And I say help in quotes. Because what I noticed in all of those pictures is the politician would still be wearing dress pants or khakis, right? With a button-down shirt always tucked in, right? Sleeves rolled up. That's a real hard worker wearing khakis and rolled up dress shirts. Maybe they would wear jeans, but again, jeans with the shirt tucked in. They always looked clean. They always looked nice. Their hair was always in place. They'd saw some logs or they'd, they'd, they'd clean up some debris, make sure that the cameras were around to take pictures of them, surrounded by people who were dirty, who'd been working 15-hour shifts trying to clean up the mess. See, I always noticed that the politicians looked out of place. They look out of place because they are out of place. Cutting logs and rebuilding houses is not a desk job. It's dangerous and dirty. Now think about Jesus leaving heaven. The key difference is Jesus was fully man. Even so, Jesus left the perfection of heaven to live in a place and a time where bathing wasn't common. There was no deodorant, no indoor plumbing, no sanitary rules for food handling, no air conditioning. That might be the worst. No cars, no airplanes, no trains. That's one way to view Jesus becoming poor. He left the perfection of heaven to live in a really terrible time. He's the king who became a commoner. But there's another way to see this. And that is that Jesus could now empathize with people. Jesus now knows what it's like to be you. Not that he didn't before, but the fact that Jesus became man in flesh and blood, he understands perfectly what it is to be us. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to suffer. 
Jesus knows what it feels like to have a skin knee. He knows what heartache and heartbreak feel like. He knows rejection and abandonment. He knows the spiritual and emotional toll that comes from intense physical pain. He knows all of that. Why? Because he became poor. He became one of us. It's important to recognize that Jesus didn't just come to empathize with humanity. There are entire theological systems that are built on that idea that that is the primary purpose of Jesus coming. What is not? Does the appearance of Jesus make the world better? Absolutely. Does being a Christian mean that we go out into the world to try to make our neighborhoods and our communities and our cities better places? Absolutely. But don't lose focus on the purpose of Jesus coming, and that's to reconcile us with the Father. Our biggest problem is not pollution. That is a problem. Our biggest problem is not cities crumbling. That's a problem. Our biggest problem is our sin, and our biggest problem is that we could not fix the gap. We could not bridge the gap between us and God on our own. And so Jesus comes to bridge that gap. And in the process, he makes the world a better place. But his primary purpose to come was to reconcile sinners to the Father. During our years, though, we do suffer a lot. A lot of people suffer for their faith. Others suffer from chronic pain. Others have been abandoned. There were many of us who've had friends who've cut ties with us. We, we lose jobs. People in the church may hurt us. Disease ravages some of our bodies. We have to watch those around us suffer, which is causing deep pain inside of us. We suffer. Pain is part of the human experience. But isn't it comforting? And over the years, I've taken so much solace in this, that when I pray, I'm not praying to a God who's distant from his creation. I'm not praying to some deity that has never stepped foot where I've stepped foot. I'm praying to the God of the universe, the one who created it, holds it in his hands, and yet walked where I walked. Feels what I've felt. Suffers far greater than I've ever suffered. But Jesus knows. Jesus understands, and that's one of the beauties of Christmas, is that Jesus came into a world and understands everything that I've gone through and everything that you've gone through. He gets it. To have a God who relates to us is something that I think we ought to think about a little bit more. I'm encouraged that God can relate to me in that way. So why did Jesus come? Jesus came so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. I'm not talking about material gain. Money and wealth is meaningless in eternity. I've sat beside too many people who are about to die. I don't enjoy it. It's part of the job. And you know what I've never heard? Man, I wish I would, could have worked more. If only I would have made more money in my life. Never heard that before. Doesn't matter. 
Jesus became poor so that we could become rich, and there's two ways to view this as well. First, through Jesus' righteousness that he's given to us, we become rich. When we turn from our sin and give our lives to Christ, God transfers that perfection, the perfection of Christ, gets on us as Jesus takes our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. This is a good deal for us, isn't it? That's the only way that we can have a right relationship with God. But the second way is that we now belong to God's kingdom. We may never see an increase in our finances, and we may struggle to pay the bills each month, but our hope is not in this world. Now, if you're struggling to find a place in this world, we've all gone through that at different points in our lives. I want you to know this. As a Christian, you have already have that place. You have a position in God's kingdom. You already have a place that's secured for you. This is the security that we have in the gospel. This world often doesn't make much sense. We see people who who are serving the Lord who suffer and some who die. And we see people who've given their lives to the work of the gospel who are persecuted for their faith. And we say, God, this doesn't make sense. when we see things through new eyes and a new mind that God has given to us, it begins to make some sense. When we see the whole world in light of God's story and through the gospel, things begin to make a little bit more sense, don't it? Now, earlier this morning, I spoke about what God's grace looks like. Now, as the story was, as it was happening, I hope you were thinking about your own story, considering those moments in your life where You've experienced grace that you didn't deserve. Where in your story have you experienced grace? Now, some of you are thinking through all of those moments in in your life, and most of us can remember moments when our parents extended grace to us that we did not deserve. In in my story, um, almost my whole life has been a story where I should have been punished and I didn't get it. Where I did everything I could to earn the wrath of my parents, and instead they gave me blessings. If you have kids, you can probably remember instances where you did that for your own children. They deserve something bad, and you gave them something good. Maybe it was from a teacher or a professor. My story, um, and I remember vividly my second year in college, um, it was a fall semester, and it was December, and I had misread the date of a final exam. And I had done well in the class. I probably had an A in the class at this point. It was a political science class. It was interesting. I enjoyed the, 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 the topics. And so it was a take-home exam where we had uh, a few questions to answer, and we had to submit it. And I pulled up my student account online, and I see that I got an A in that class. And I'm thinking, oh, goodness, I didn't even do the final exam. If I would have gotten a zero, which is what I deserved on that exam, I probably would have had a C or a D in the class. It was weighted pretty heavy. And so I'm frantic. I'm sending the professor an email, and and I said, Doctor, I'm so sorry. I I misread the date. Um, I understand. I saw that you gave an A, but I think that's a mistake. Um, I understand if you need to correct that. Um, But I promise you, regardless, I will write out the answers, and I'll send send those to you today. And so I'm checking my email every few minutes, just trying to get a resolution to this panic. 
He responds back with two words. He says, Merry Christmas. That professor should have given me a zero on the exam because it was all my fault. I was the one who messed up. I was the one who misread the dates. I was the one who did not do the work. And that professor said, Merry Christmas. He gave me grace that I did not deserve. He gave me an A that I did not earn. Merry Christmas. And my guess is you have stories like this. Where, where someone has extended grace to you that you did not deserve, where you were undeserving, but you still got it anyway. If you're a Christian, you have the greatest example of grace that's been given to you. The grace of forgiveness from the Father of all the sins that you've ever committed, past, present, and future. All of the bad things that you've done, all of the sins that you've committed, God extends grace and he says, look, I know you messed up, I know you sinned, and I know you can't fix this, but guess what? I can and I have. All because of what Jesus did for you. This is the greatest story ever told, and the, by the way, the greatest story ever told is not a baby in a manger as much as we love it, it's not the greatest story ever. Christmas is miraculous, but if Jesus only came as a baby, we're all doomed. If Jesus only came to give us an example, we are doomed. If Jesus only came to do good things, we are doomed. If Jesus only came to be perfect, we are doomed. See, Christmas always points us to Easter. If we only celebrate the baby in a manger and not the king on a cross or the empty tomb, we're left without grace and hope. It's a good story, but that's it. In his book that has sold more than a million copies, called Knowing God, J.I. Packer explained what Christmas is all about. This is what he writes. The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message the world has ever heard or will hear. Presents are nice. Spending time with family is wonderful. But nice only makes us feel good. It eases our burdens, but only until the next tragedy comes. We're right to enjoy all the things of Christmas, but we can never neglect the true meaning of Christmas, that God sent his son to become a man to die for the sins of his people. This is the story of Christmas. It's bigger than a baby in a manger. When we remember that Christmas is more than Jesus in a manger, we see the glories of God's grace found in the gospel. When our riches are found in the risen Christ, Christmas means so much more. Would you pray with me?